welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome everybody to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that focuses on the aspects of filmmaking that sometimes get uh, overlooked or stay behind the scenes. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And, uh, you know, as always, of course, you can reach us uh, at thenerdparty.com slash contact uh, and drop a line to Great Shot Kid. While you're at thenerdparty.com, look at all of the other shows that we have, uh, you know, for every taste from Harry Potter to Star Wars to Doctor Who uh, to Star Trek even. And many more on the way or uh, that you can find over on Filibuster where we're currently doing a countdown to Infinity War uh, and which is a whole network wide thing. You can hear every host in the, in the course of that. Uh, and of course you can find us on Twitter at join nerd party on Instagram, the nerd party and Facebook, the nerd party, use the hashtag great shot kid and let us know you're talking about us. So yeah, welcome to great shot kid. And uh, Mike is always a pleasure, pleasure to see you and talk to you. You too. You too. You know, I was just looking at your, uh, your letterboxed account. Uh Oh, Oh, that's trouble. And, and I see that you recently watched um, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Oh, yes. Rewatched. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty solid, you know, all things considered. Yeah, it is. Did you see it in the theater? Of course I did. Yeah. It played in one theater in the D.C. area, and I went with uh, my friend Joey. He figures into a lot of my movie going from that era in my life. And uh, we had to go down to DuPont Circle. And... um yeah, but it was it was a very small theater, and um, it was great. I remember loving it then. I loved it again this time too. It's just <laughs> you remember me, Shrinky Dink. <laughs> like it's just great, great jokes, man. Those guys were so funny. Are so funny. Yeah, yeah. I went to see it in the theater too because you know, obviously, huge MST three K MST three K fan in high school and everything like that, and. There were a couple of friends and I who were like, let's go do this. You know, so we went opening night to the one theater that was playing in Chicago, Piper's Alley, yeah. which was the worst theater in the city. But <laughs> it was sort of like known as the art theater. So like like when yeah. Punch Drunk Love opened up, you know, it opened exclusively at Piper's Alley. But like they scratched every print and the sound was Ugh. all mangled and mono usually and everything it was terrible but the, the it was packed you know it's like sold out yeah. show there's this this one woman who was like obsessed with tom servo she kept every time he'd tell a joke she'd be like oh tommy you're so naughty oh tommy you're such a bad boy it's really really strange wow that is <laughs> bizarre that is that's disturbing yeah. in, in, a, in a way you know i actually for some reason i seem to remember that i i remember actually sitting next to joey and i remember uh there were two guys sitting there was us and there was a row then there were the two guys in front for some reason i seem to remember there was a pillar breaking up the audience seating in this theater oh, that's good yeah like it, it was literally like in a basement so this was like a support pillar for the building sort of thing yeah we've got a theater like that here in chicago which just reopened like a well for force awakens the the oak brook mall theater where in their big yeah. auditorium they've got a few pillars which is pretty great um but you know weird architecture See, it's always cool in movie theaters but you know what's 
what's really funny about that, actually, it, it, wow, it's funny how memories come back to you. Okay. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, which I adore, still adore to this day. Um, I saw it at the Rockville, Maryland. Um, it was a United Artists Theater at the time. And it was really weird. You had to like go into the parking garage, and then like the easiest way to get there was like you had to go down an escalator underground, and then like go to the box office, and like you were literally like as far underground as you could possibly go, like down where the subway runs, sort of thing. And I remember the theater; it was still not stadium seating. Um, and I it actually I remember the film as well because I went <laughs> went with a girl that I was striking a relationship back up with. Always a good idea. <laughs> Um, cause I remember she kissed me on the cheek when she got up to go to the, re- the restroom at one point. I was like, oh, it's happening. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, just like thinking of, you know, you mentioning like us talking about the rundown theaters that it was run down. It later got redone and it was the first Regal cinemas that I ever ran across. And I had, I, I remember because they redid how you entered it. And so instead of going to the parking garage, like basically they turned it into its own facade with like sandwich shops next to it with a pot belly. Actually, it's the first pot belly I ever saw. And that, that originated in Chicago, didn't it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we do oh, have I them here. It did. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, no, just talking about the old theaters just reminded me of that, uh, that memory just, wow, came galloping out of nowhere. So yeah. Yeah. Go. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, there's, there's a lot of theaters in this area, which seem to be opening up again, like that have been shuttered which are reopening because it seems like a lot of the uh, theater chains, now that they've installed the recliners, obviously that yeah. cuts down on like half your seating, right? But it's worth it because you're getting like twice as many people in the door. But the problem is now there's too much demand to, to meet the supply instead of the other way around. So like yeah. a, a lot of theater chains are like, well, we closed this theater like 10 years ago, um, but, you know, it's right next to this other one, which keeps on selling out. So let's open it like really fast just so that we can get more seats, you know. And that's what happened with this one, the, the Oak Brook Theater that I was talking about. Like, it was so bizarre because, like, you know, they they had two theaters at this mall back in the day. They had one inside the mall. And then they had one out in the parking lot. And the one in the parking lot was weird because it used to be this massive screen with 70 millimeter. That's actually where, like, in, like, the Chicago area, you know, with 70 millimeter and everything, like, that's where, like, Star Wars opened up and stuff, you know. And in whatever it was, the 80s or whatever, they decided to do that thing that happened where they would, you know, twin these large theaters. And, like, you would go into, like, the auditorium. I remember seeing Unbreakable there. You'd go into the auditorium and, like, you could see, like, on the back wall, like, the way that the architecture was, like, literally, they just had this massive auditorium and they stuck a wall in the center and now it became two auditoriums which were much smaller you know and it's like okay Mm -hmm. this doesn't really work but they had that one outside and then inside they had this like small four screen theater you know with like the pillars and in the big theaters and stuff like that and they tore down the the one outside to make it a parking lot. And this one, they just like boarded up and they had like an urban outfitter on the other side and stuff. And every time I was at that mall, I'd be like, Oh, look at that. You can kind of see where the box office was, you know, that sort of thing. And one day I'm just walking through the mall. This is about 
a month before Force Awakens comes out. I'm walking through the mall yeah. and I see a sign that says like movie theater that way. And I'm like, what? And like I found a security guard and I'm like, it says movie theater that way. What? What is that? And they're like, oh, yeah, they're opening up the movie theater. And like I walked down there and like there were literally guys like, you know, bringing recliners off of trucks, you know. And it's like we've, you know, they put in new screens. They put in digital projectors, took out the 35 millimeter, put in, you know, the recliners, you know, some new carpet, a little bit of paint. You got the concession stand all sort of like outlined there, just bring in all the new equipment and boom. And it was like literally like in the span of a month, this thing was open, you know, because they 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 were they had a hard deadline. You know, it was December 19th yeah. or whatever it was that Force Awakens came out, you know. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you know, that was successful enough that they actually built like a big 12 screen with all the fancy dancy stuff in another part of the mall. And it's like, wow, now that mall has two theaters in it again. It went from two to zero back to two. You know, I, I remember, and the thing is, you told a story, I think, having to do with RoboCop 2 when we were talking with, uh, with Brandon about that a, a little bit ago. Um, now I'm thinking of the, at Wheaton Plaza there in Wheaton, Maryland, um, there, was, there was the Wheaton Plaza 11 theater, which was outside, and then there was the Cineplex Odeon 4, which was in such a state of disrepair, we called it the Cineplex Odeus. <laughs> and um, I saw Alien 3 in that, as well as Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, and Glengarry Glenn Ross in, in that Cineplex Odeon 4. Um, and then the 11 is, I think, yeah, that's where I saw RoboCop 2. Uh, I also saw Bram Stoker's Dracula there. And, wow, it's a like, story of, of watching film, but... W- I got to ask, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I can't believe we haven't, if we haven't, but I can't recall. Seating. Like Star Wars, I can picture the type of seating I was in for every one of these things. Yeah. And it's so weird because it's almost like a history of movie seating. And, uh, you know, we know the projection stuff that Lucas was on the forefront of and everything. But it's like, you prefer recliners or do you prefer the old, you know, the rake before the pre- Stadium seating, the sloped seating. Yeah, slo- well, in theater it was called a rake, but okay. um, in the industry you know, we call it sloped. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> See, that's the difference between live theater and movie theater, right there. there Just you in, in, you know, for you. Uh, wh- which type of seating do you wind up preferring? I prefer stadium seating because you know I, you don't have to worry about looking over people's heads. You know, I mean, as much as I love the music box in Chicago especially considering the fact that, you know, they have very sort of like narrow aisles and everything and their seats are very, very old. It's like one of those things where even though there are, you know, 700 seats in the theater, there's like two which are good, you know? Like you want (laughs) that center aisle with like the, where people can walk across so you get plenty of leg room, you know, or you want to get on an aisle because there's like three basically sections, you know, with like two aisles going down the the length of the theater. And you really want to sit on like the aisle on one of the wings uh, so that you get a clear sight line. Otherwise, you're going to be looking over someone's head. And yeah. I've watched a lot of movies like that, and I don't particularly like it. 
So stadium seating, I thought, was kind of innovative. Although, you know, like you're talking about Star Wars and, you know, Lucas, I remember, you know, someone saying, you know, when when episode one came out, they're like, I'm going to be sitting on the bottom, no stadium seating for me, because when that crawl comes, it's designed so that you're looking up at it, right? And I can see that, I guess. But the funny thing is, like, I, I don't, you know... I don't know. It's it's gotten to. It really depends on the auditorium. I mean, I think what you see, no matter what, is like people always gravitate towards like in, in a stadium seating theater where you've got like the front section and then the back where you go up. People always go for that first row, right? Like they they want to put their feet on that railing or something. Oh, you mean the first row? That's the break between the sections, right? Oh yeah, no, the, yes, absolutely. You race to get there as quick as you can. Yes, <laughs> and and I've been. I, I, that's naturally where where I go too. But I've noticed in like some of these big theaters, like like the Oak Brook, where they've got the Dolby Cinema at the Oak Brook, like you know, people like sitting. You know, people will will start there and then go back, and it's like you know, there are people who just sit in the last row of a theater. I mean. Roger Ebert, very famously, after I think personally misunderstanding what his, you know, optometrist told him, you know, would always sit basically in the very last row, you know, of, of a theater to, in order to see the entire screen. But to me, like, mm. if you're going to see something on the big screen, it should be an immersive experience. So Completely there's agree. numerous theaters where I'm sitting in like the last row of the front section instead of the first row of the back section because Mm -hmm. i want to experience this on the big screen and it's still not too close you know i uh i i remember with the old uh, i'll use your industry's term the the old sloped seating um at the movie theater that finally showed up in uh, my little backwater um they it it was specifically and it depended on which auditorium you went into because of course it was always I, you know, it was nine cinemas, but you always hoped you. There were like four good ones, and then the other five were those little rinky dink ones that yeah. were like giant televisions. And it was just like, oh God, please be playing in the good one. Yep. Um, and you were always so disappointed when you walked in, and they they would say something like Theater Five. Oh. <laughs> um, but I remember it was always in Auditorium One, and I think the sixth or the seventh one. It was, um, for me, it was always the seventh row, not right on the end, but like third or fourth seat in was always like perfect. I don't know why. I never understood why it worked like that, but it did. It's it's one of those weird things. I mean, I guess everyone has their 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 seat, you know, and I, the thing about the sloped theaters now, you know, before it's like, oh, no, you don't want that, you know, whatever, because of stadium seating now because of the recliners, like it's a lot easier to do recliners on the sloped floor than on the you know, with stadium seating. Yeah. You basically have to rebuild the whole thing or whatever. And, and I find that, you know, like the recliners do tend to like from a viewing standpoint, work better on the sloped floor because usually you get more leg room, you know, there's, it takes up so much space to have those steps that usually like, you know, you recline your seat, you know, and then you end up like kicking a wall in front of you. And it's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this isn't yeah. exactly ideal. Like these, these recliners are great. Maybe not the best for stadium seating, you know, but, yeah. um, 
but yeah, I mean, like you're talking about like those like specific seats in, in theaters or whatever. I mean, I think I told the story where I, you know, pulled the seat of of my my choosing yeah. out of the yes. theater that I worked at. And, you know, I mean, that that's definitely like a thing, you know, like when I go to, you know, Oak Brook or I've got my seat and then when I go go to this place you know the music box I got my seat there you know whatever and that's why like there's such like a mad dash I think (laughs) whenever tickets go on sale for you know these big blockbusters now yeah because it's like it's not like I gotta get my ticket before they sell out it's I gotta get my seat before someone else takes it you know it's strange so so here's here's a question though as a, a, a fellow cinephile, do you think that the new projection methods truly make any difference to how much you've enjoyed watching films? Do you think that digital has done anything to um, enhance your overall experience? You know, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, you could take this back to home video, too. You know, I mean, this is sort of like my go-to all the time. Like, I have... 4k hdr blah 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 you know i mean i'm gonna watch you know baby driver in hdr 4k you know uh tomorrow or whatever and it's a good choice (laughs) it's amazing that that you can do that right but like as as exciting as that is as exciting as it is to you know click on a button and instantly get last Jedi in the best format available on your, you know, Apple TV or whatever. Like I will never be more excited than I was getting, you know, aliens, you know, in a box Mm. set on laser disc, you know, in stereo sound and everything. And like I've hooked, hooked my laser disc player up to my, my 4k HDR TV and let me tell you, it looks like absolute garbage. And yet, you know, back in the day, it's like, <laughs> this is the best it's ever going to get, you know? And yeah. and so, I mean, I guess the answer is like, no. And in terms of like like theater presentation or whatever, I mean, it's so strange. Like when digital came about, it was like, oh, my God, it's perfect because it had all of the thing, like all of the things that we could control like as projectionists you know like yeah. you know you want to make sure the image is as focused as possible you want to make sure the image is as stable as possible and you go to great you know lengths in order to to make those things happen and in the end usually it's like that's almost dead on you know that's almost perfect and then you see those things you know in digital and it's like that is perfect. Like that is exactly, you know, focused down to the pixel that's framed down to the pixel. There is absolutely no judder in that image at all. This is the best thing I've ever seen. But, you know, now that film has basically gone away and you, we watch everything on digital. Now it's like, Oh, I can see how the contrast isn't as good. Oh, this transfer is really not the best. That image looks kind of muddy. What I would really like is just a nice, clean film image, 35 millimeter image. And then when you see it, even though it does have the judder and even though it does have, you know, the, the, the soft edges or whatever, you look at it and you're like, 
okay, well, I know that that's exactly how the movie's supposed to look. I know that the colors are not off on, on The Big Lebowski because I'm watching it as it was originally back right. in 1998. And so, you know, it d- does, I think it all levels off sooner or later, you know? You know, when you when you yeah. see HDR for the first time, you're like, this is the best thing ever. But sooner or later, it's like, well, that's just how it is. Yeah, I mean, I I don't, I don't want to be dismissive of, you know, the, the forward march of technology or anything, but it's just, I don't remember any film experience I've had in the digital age where I said, well, that movie was okay, but at least it looked great. You know, taking it outside of like the director of photography thing, I, I wasn't sitting there saying, you know, oh, well, it's three stars, but I'm going to give it four because there were no film scratches or I didn't hear any hiss on the soundtrack or... You know, like it, it's so funny because to, to speak to your point about leveling off, you know, I, my first exposure, like my first and only exposure to Star Wars for years or The Empire Strikes Back or anything was flawed film presentations. And it did nothing to dampen anybody's embrace or love of these films. And I just think, I think it's funny because I think that the perfect projection thing is just supposed to be for the sake of the filmmaker, which I totally support and I totally get. They know that what they created is supposed to be up there, but there are still mistakes that happen with the digital. Like I talked to you about Black Panther, where like I was like the lettering there doesn't look like it's pixelated on the edges. That. My understanding of digital is that's not supposed to be a thing that happens. Like, I'm supposed to see smooth, clean edges on lettering. Why is this happening? Like, and it infuriates me because if we were in the era of film and something was like a little off or a little blurry or like there was a skip or something, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, an imperfection. Now, if I don't get perfect, if I don't get spot on perfect or the colors look a little washed out or... I mean, there's this one theater that's that's closest to me that I go to because it's always that contest back and forth. But I swear, whoever's running their digital projector doesn't really know what they're doing mm-hmm. because they're they're. When I watched, um, for instance, Greatest Showman, not speaking about the quality of the effects or anything, but like it just looked weird, like the contrast settings were off, like like it had this weird pallor to it. Where I was like. What the hell? I know this is being projected digitally. This should look right. That's the whole point. Yeah, they probably had the, the 3D polarizer up in front of the screen. That's always probably. the first thing that I check whenever I go into a theater. I look up, and if I see two <laughs> of an image coming out of that porthole instead of one, I'm like, oh, God. You know. Now, do you mean, do you mean two where like you'll see... Like it's a double pane of glass, and there's like one image, and then one image. Like, like usually you see like a single pane of glass, and instead of just the light shining through the the pane of glass, you know where you can see reflecting off of that glass, like yeah. the image, you'll see the image twice, like stacked on top of each other, one on top yes. of the other. Okay, if you see that. Then nine times out of ten, that means that the 3D polarizer is in place, which cuts down on the light dramatically. And then the question is, how many people do you have to talk to before someone will remove it and give you a nice, bright, clean, sharp image, you know? And I find myself, like, picking my movie theaters based on who 
consistently removes the 3D polarizer from the in front of the, the the lens because it's gotten to be a problem where I'm like I'm paying all this money to see this movie. I mean, it, it, and that's really what it comes down to. Like you know, any theater can have as many bells and whistles as as it as it says it does, but if you don't have someone taking the time to just do a basic thing then it's going to look like garbage, you know? And you know what, though? I think that for for you, for me, for, you know, other people out there, especially people listening to us because they're obviously discerning cinephiles, uh, like it makes a difference to us. But I, the biggest lesson for me that I walked away with from the movie-going experience of Black Panther, besides the fact that with these recliners, I would still like to put in like a small, like really razor thin needle so that if somebody pulled up their phone, like I had to put my leg up, like I had to bend my leg in half and like angle my chair back because some jerk face can't go 30 minutes without looking at his phone. Just a little pinprick with like Novocaine so that your hand goes numb. So And they drop their phone. They can't, I can't operate my phone. I don't know why. Wears off by the end of the film. That's, uh, this is an innovation I would support in filmmaking. But m- my biggest takeaway from that film-going experience, people don't care. Yeah. They really don't. Because if people cared, they would be... And yes, plenty of people have talked about the unevenness of the effects in Black Panther. I sort of railed against the unevenness of the effects in The Last Jedi because there were a couple where I was like, come on, guys, I know you're better than this. This doesn't make sense. And like you and me, we might go in and be like, oh, the colors are washed out. Oh, those that's pixelated. I honestly don't think people care. So it's almost as if all of this innovation has been put into the projection for nothing. You know, like it's it's almost like it just doesn't matter. Well, so mean, there's all of this innovation put out there and people just don't even care. Well, I'll tell you why the innovation is put out there. I mean, it's, it's a very clear and obvious thing, which is yeah. not at all glamorous. It's the fact that it's saving the studios millions of dollars. That's yeah. why digital exists. It's not even because of the theaters wanting to, you know, whatever. It's the studios who are benefiting because they don't have to make prints that cost a thousand dollars and they don't need to ship them across the world, you know? I mean, there's other advantages for sure, and there's also disadvantages. But the real I mean the the thing that drove it more than anything else was the fact that it was saving the studios a bunch of money. So it's just another way to uh to squeeze another thirty cents out of my fifteen dollars. Uh, that I pay. I'm, yeah, no, I mean, it's, I it, for, it really is ticket. like a, I mean, it, it's, when you think about it, I mean, it's just, it, it makes perfect sense. Like, you know, yeah. a 35 millimeter print, you know, it weighs what, 50 pounds? You got to ship it. You know, it costs, mm-hmm. you know, a lot to manufacture that thing, which you're going to be using for maybe like three weeks before you melt it yeah. down and recycle it, you know, and turn it into something else. I mean, it's a very inefficient thing. Wait a minute. Thing. Is, is, that, is that what they did? Yeah, because they're prints? polyester. So, so they, they would melt them and turn them into other film prints? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know exactly how they recycled them or whatever, but yeah, they were like chopped up and whatever. You know, the way it, you would recycle it, anything. You know, it's just polyester. It never ever occurred to me what happened to the print after it was done. Yeah, it ne- yeah. like it's a thought that never came into my brain. They say, I mean, you know, huh. it, it goes around, and and like the, you see the distribution model changing, obviously because of it. But you know, they make two thousand prints. Let's just say, ship it all over the country, and then you know, after three or four weeks or whatever. It, it it finishes playing at those theaters, so then they ship it to the second run theaters, you know, mm-hmm. who are running the print for the second time, you know, like that's that's where yeah. they, and that's, and then after all they all of them play it, then that's why you would get for a lot of movies, you know, um, international release dates which are later. Right. Then, you know, cause yeah. it's like, oh, no. And there's true. I mean, like when I was a projectionist, there would be time. Like I remember, I think it was like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels or whatever. I could be wrong about that. But there were certainly movies where it like opened in the UK and then we would get the print, you know, two months later. And it was weird because, you know, most of the prints are manufactured in the US, but those were manufactured in the UK. And you'd see like different like heads and tails because it came from a different lab, you know color would be spelled with a u or whatever you know what i mean yeah, yeah and yeah. and it was just kind of and and they'd be a little worn out you know some of them might be scratched some of them might be dirty because that's you know they, they went they, they played at other theaters so so mm-hmm. now you don't have to do that right and i mean now you beam the movie to theaters via satellite and you know you can move it to any auditory you can play it in a million theaters at once if you want you know you can so, you can do marathons. You can do this this eighteen movie marathon, and you can do it in you know a thousand you know theaters across the country because you don't have to have a thousand prints of each of these movies. You know. So, then beside, I mean, you know, setting aside, of course, like Netflix and streaming and stuff like that, that would be just yet another nail in the coffin of the second run theater. Is there's no second run now? Like there, there's no cost for the studio to try to soak back up by having a print run at a second run theater i think i mean i don't know i I don't exactly know how they work because there aren't a lot of them around you know but and i think there are fewer now but the two things that i see happening one there is a market for it in that you know it's cheaper so more people go to see it and they're playing it at the end of you know the the film's theatrical life cycle Right, so you, you can kind of get away with it in that sense, but it also um, uh, it happens faster, you know. Like they'll start playing movies, like they might not play them the week that they open, but they'll start playing them like two weeks down the line instead of two months down the line, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that happens uh, that's happening, I think, and I and I don't one hundred percent know, but it seems to me that a lot of those second-run theaters have become first-run theaters because yeah, there okay. is more demand sense. for it there. But that, that's kind of how, how I see it happening because that, that, as everyone knows, the theatrical window is shrinking, right? Movies are coming out on yeah. video much faster than they used to. Yeah. You know, I... I okay. And I think this this well, you know, this might be something to discuss at another time as well. But not absolute tops, not your absolute favorite or anything like that. But 
a favorite, one of your favorite as a film goer, not as somebody who, you know, has projected film or anything like that. What is one of your favorite film goer experience? What is, what is one of your favorite uh, movie theater memories? The thing, the one that I always think of, which, you know, just kind of talking about a variation of it here, I, I can't see anything topping it really is um, when the first Avengers movie came out and we went to the, at that point, six movie marathon, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. And all of this leading up to Avengers, it, it was pretty great. They had sold out like two theaters and, you know, it was just the excitement, the anticipation, everything. It was the first time I had ever really done anything like that, gone to like a six movie marathon. And, you know, like later in the summer, they're like, we're doing a trilogy for Dark Knight. You know, that was a little, it wasn't as great, you know, just as an experience. You know, then, of course, when episode seven came out, they did that. And it's like, yeah, but they had to start it so early that it was kind of like just a daze. But there's something about that that Avengers one. Maybe it's because it's the first time or whatever. But that was like, I think the single best movie going experience I've ever had. What, what What about you? You know, one that that comes to mind um, actually has to be there. There was a there's a theater that's I think a historic theater in Baltimore, uh, the Senator. And one thing that they used to do is they used to every Christmas uh, you you wouldn't buy a ticket. Your price of admission was you had to show up with a donation, either a monetary donation or a bag of groceries to donate to the Maryland food bank. And then they would have a legit double feature where they would show the 1951 Alastair Sim Scrooge, a Tom and Jerry Christmas cartoon, the one where uh, Tom thinks he's in hell. And then it's a wonderful life. And I remember the first time I went to it, it was with my buddy Mike, and I'll never forget how beautiful it was that, first off, everybody was into the 19... Like, I got to see the 1951... As everybody knows, I adore adaptations of A Christmas Carol, and to see that one on the big screen was just magical. And then how quiet and weepy the theater got during It's a Wonderful Life. Like, such a such an amazing that's the thing that I think you miss with the home streaming and stuff you can connect with a film you can have a magic moment with a film you can watch it with your family but when you're in that theater for something like It's a Wonderful Life or Titanic even where the entire theater is just crying and have this big cathartic thing about oh my gosh time is passing and we all should be decent to each other sort of stuff like that is, you know, that's the root of live theater and, of course, movie theaters and everything like that. And it's like, you know, not to get all grumpy old man sort of thing, but, like, I think society needs more of that. Needs more, like, people coming together and having that shared communal cry session or happy session. Or, you know, like, that's what you're going to for the movie theater. It isn't even so much the film. It's like going to, like, it, you know, going to a U2 concert. And, you, and you're walking out. It's like, oh, yeah, remember when Bono sang that song? <laughs> You know, like it's that's what you're going for. That's what you're paying for. And it's like that's why I wish thing that's why I wish things weren't so sterile and why people weren't checking their phones and stuff. But yeah, I, I definitely go back to that seeing that double feature for the first time was just absolute magic. Crisp cold air outside. You know, just 
beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do love that stuff. You know, I love that, that sort of theme stuff, and and also going to see movies with an audience. You know, I mean, one of the things that I found, you know, like Music Box does these midnight shows every weekend, and I found that the audience there there seems to be a slightly larger audience on Saturday nights than there is on Friday nights. So I, I usually kind of try to gravitate towards the Saturday night screening because I know that everyone's going to be into it and it's going to be what you're talking about, you know, a community yeah. experience. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Well, uh, if people want to trade their own movie theater stories with you, uh, where can they find you online? Well, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Mumbles3K and you can also find me on a brand new show called Film Damage, which is now on the internet. Uh, It is uh, me and my co-host Max uh, talking about uh, film from the perspective of the booth. You know, two former projectionists talking about, we start each episode with kind of a uh, some something about the booth, you know, whether it's talking about how we, you know, thread a movie or build a print or whatever, and then we get into a discussion of whatever it is we're, we're discussing that week. And uh, we just launched uh, yesterday. We've got three episodes out for you. We've got one in which we talk about what Thursday night in the booth was like, what it was that we had to do every Thursday night for like ten years. And then we've got uh, another episode where we talk about, uh, you know, the nerd party's uh, a friend of the nerd party, Nick Anastasio, about the visual effects of, of Black Panther and, and what he did on that movie. And then we have uh, a good old fashioned audio commentary for Baby Driver. And uh, if you. And- audio commentaries with Mike and Max, folks, are well worth your time. Always well worth your time. And speaking of which, we we also have uh, three more episodes coming out for you tomorrow in which we're calling them CTS Classic, where we go back to our old show, Commentary Track Stars, and we cut them down into sort of best of things. So we've got three of those where... We're, we're, we've got segments from our, our Die Hard 2 commentary, our very first commentary from eight years ago, and then also a, uh, uh, a an off-topic in which we discuss the casting of an unknown actor named Tom Hardy in an unknown role in uh, Batman 3. So uh, definitely head on over to filmdamagepod.com and check that out, or you can also uh, find us on Twitter at Film Damage. Awesome. Very awesome. And, of course, you can find me uh, crawling out there as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. And you can uh, go on over to Aggressive Negotiations for some fun Star Wars talk with me and uh, Matthew Rushing, uh, where we, we delve into the nooks and crannies of the Star Wars English muffin. So thanks again for uh, joining us. And remember, you know, we'd love to hear your stories, too, about your favorite movie theater memories. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.